0: to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders
1: and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens.
0: And today we're excited to be talking with Mercedes Samudio of Shameproof Parenting about the defiant teen. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about our own experiences. You know, I'm not sure like we would necessarily use the phrase defiant teen, but I definitely had times where It felt like defiance, and I reacted to it in, like, not the best way. How about you, Steph? Yeah, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, oh my God. I was thinking,
1: if only you could remove the emotion from it. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: my, the word I wrote down was angry. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Exactly. That's the one. (laughs) Uh That's the word. Oh, I wrote down fired up. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I think that those two, I would say those two are fair together. I can almost like revisit that, the depth of that emotion without having anything happen, but just going back to that spot. So I'm, I wanted to ask my kids what they thought. I did ask one kid, and they very sweetly have no memory of any time that we butted heads. Oh my Isn't God, that, that is so, wait a minute. I think we should
1: just end the podcast. That is such great news for parents. I'm not sure if we would need to say
0: anything else, right? Well, number one, it's entirely not true. And number two, probably not even true for that kid. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just that... It's just that they've placed it in a different spot. Like it's not it's not defining anymore.
1: Yeah, which is so good. And I was thinking about that obviously our listeners are going to hear this from Mercedes. I was thinking about the way she approaches these conversations or these uh, moments of defiance. It is removing the emotion but it what I feel or how I feel when I when we talk to her was that she puts herself so easily into the spot, kind of sitting with them instead of sitting against them. So it's this, this empathy and this like really trying to understand why they're acting that way, which is so
0: awesome, but not when you're so mad. <laughs> it's so hard to get to that place. Well, I think that obviously like she doesn't have the emotion around what the parent has at that moment. Yeah. However, I do think when I've been told to try and remove the emotion from it, more than move the emotion, but not not think it's about me. Not think that it's at me, that they're doing it to me or at me. Yes. Or even that, like, maybe I t- am taking a higher road of parenting instead of, like, literally this budding heads of two equals, yes. which is For this how game, Sue, I, the hands on top of the hand, like we're each trying to win. Who wins? Yep. Who wins? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's so hard to say if I had this great advice when this was happening and kids, well, I I did. I did have years where I had that great advice and I got to try to apply it for younger kids in my family. I think it was doable, not without a lot of error and a lot of effort. And
1: a lot of reminders, like reminders. like If you talk to somebody that day and something happened the next day, it's fresh. But if it's not fresh, it's almost like you didn't hear it.
0: Well, the good news is I had a lot of opportunity to make it become more habit than just once. So I think I did get better at it, but you know, it was rough and I, I like I was thinking about the stories in my life where I can still get to that emotion mm-hmm. and a number of them they kind of revolve around the car. It's interesting cuz the car is a place where power is totally being taken away from you as a parent and you just feel it like kind of sliding away. Mm-hmm. Every decision that you used to have control over that depended on a ride, for example, no longer does, except that I can say, hand me those keys and you will never drive again, right? <laughs> right? Like I can go to that never. Right. You know, I was thinking about what Mercedes talked about and how every relationship has conflict. But what we typically do when we come to conflict is try to resolve it in the way that we dealt with conflict in our family of origin. So if your family sucked at it, then you're going to have a hard time finding another way to deal with it, unless you try really hard not to repeat that. And more than that even is like to grow into a new space, right? Like it's not just not doing that, but what will you do? Yeah. So that's, I think, what both of us were so touched by, this idea that there is a different way to do it and like thinking about if I don't want to be like in a boxing ring with my kid, which was, it was, it never went well. Like never. It, that we could say with a hundred percent assurance, right? Right. I mean, I guess like if you're trying to win, yeah, I did have some power to win and I could say you won't be driving the car, but that's not really a win. That's just kind of like a a, a false sense of like you know, that whole power thing. But, you know, I, I don't want that in my relationships, you know. I don't think I wanted it then, but I didn't know. I grew up in a house, and maybe you did also, I think it was such a time thing of, you know, when you're in my house, you'll do as I say. You know, I think that at least for some of those kids, I got to parent a little differently than that attitude. Yeah,
1: and it is, I mean, you didn't mean it this way, but the word attitude, I think what, for me, it's when I feel like their attitude was coming at me and I think it does create such a, because we grew up uh, with the not in my house and you would never talk that way. So when they're coming at us with that attitude, firing away in my head is like, oh my God, I would have never talked this way. Oh my God. Right. So it's like you're saying in my family of origin. So how can I not get so amped up in that moment? It's yeah, virtually it impossible. You will,
0: you will not talk to me like oh, that. Yeah. Right? Oh right. yeah. Oh yeah. Like the tone mattered more than the substance for sure. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Mercedes talks about, which I really think about a lot now, I think we hear so many extras talking about this, that conflict doesn't need to be resolved in the moment. Yes. Having conflict doesn't mean, and I I think I was like on like double time in trying to resolve conflict, Not not in a necessarily a good way, but I couldn't sit with conflict. So there had to be a resolution. And it might be that, I said you will never drive again, but that was some form of rev- resolution. Yeah. Whereas like being able to walk away from that bad attitude, fighting in a in a ring and just say, "Hey, it's going to be okay," or something and walking away, like so hard. Oh my god. In any relationship, <laughs>
1: it is like it is really hard. I just I love this idea. I love it with ev- actually everybody, but there is no one we're more uh, our buttons are more pushed by than our than raising our teens. This idea of almost getting up and going and sitting next to them, like that's what I picture when we talk to her, where she's really just trying to like diffuse the emotion and understand, like, hmm, they might just be having a really hard time with this.
0: I mean, if you can do it, you get, you get like the gold medal, the Olympic gold medal. But the, other, the thing that I felt like, I don't know how many times I could do that. Probably occasionally there were moments where I had more sympathy than anger. But the other thing is you don't have to do that. You can let it sit. You can let the the conflict sit until you can do that. Yeah, that's
1: fascinating.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? But, but think about that. Like I think I think we do it in our marriage. Yes. We're not going to take each other down as the, you know, as it's it's escalating. It's like, hey, we need a break. Yeah. But somehow I didn't catch on to the kid thing for way too long. It's so true. And, and you know what, Sue? Marriage is a good example.
1: I'm thinking business partner is a good example. I remember when we used to have our print magazine and we would be so stressed going to the printer. And there were many times where we would talk the next week and be like, okay, we were really stressed. Let's, let's go back to that. Because we knew we couldn't talk about it when it was going on. So we were able to do it there, right? So it's interesting to think about doing that in other arenas. Like the boxing arena where we're standing
0: with our teen, right? Yeah, I mean, the closer I think the closer you get to the relationship, the harder it is. So you know, it's like I don't know why marriage would be easier no, than kids, really. but somehow marriage has a maybe it has more history than raising kids. I don't know what it is, yeah. but but those teenagers can get under your skin so much, and to to like be able to, it's also like a power dynamic. I think like if if you think that you get to make the rules in your house, which, you know, you do, you are the parent, then it's kind of easy to jump in and say, like, you will not talk to me like that. (laughs) But the kinder, gentler world that we've learned is that, is everything okay? You seem really worked up about something that doesn't seem like such a big deal. Or again, saying we'll talk about it later. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I just referenced this to a friend this
1: morning. I said, I did have a great tolerance for them storming out of the room and slamming the door, I would look at my husband and I'm like, oh good, that means we're done for a while. <laughs> so that I could do for some reason. And maybe because I found some humor in it, I'm sure there was, but it almost was like a placeholder or it it did remove them. Like it wasn't addressing the complex. So it's funny, I had the thought a few hours ago that I could do it there. But I think when you're you're kind of sparring or I don't know, it is really hard.
0: Okay. I'm going to throw in one other okay. idea. The things I could anticipate, I could kind of cope with. The things that threw me for a loop, like when one kid who had a license drove home without the other kid because they were mad at them.
1: I remember I that. I couldn't
0: <laughs> have in my, in my wildest preparedness, I couldn't have thought of that one as a possibility. So I went berserk on that one. But when it was the door slamming, I got used to that. Like that didn't feel like anything. So it's kind of like maybe the things that we we see that they resolve. We see that the door slamming, you know, they get over it, they come f- down for dinner and it's lovely. It's so right? true. They, and it's they, so it's just, proverbial,
1: right? We even grew up with the door slamming. It's familiar.
0: Right. So the ones that are like, you know, if you like control and you like to be prepared, which I think both of us do, the things that you can't prepare for is another human walking in with some scenario you could never imagine. And then it's, Really hard to kind of catch yourself at those moments. All right. Well, you know, I think I bared a little more than I wanted to today, but that's how it goes when you talk about raising teenagers. Up next is our conversation with Mercedes Samudio. We can't wait for you to join us.
1: Thanks so much for checking it out.
0: Mercedes Samudio is a social worker, parent coach, and speaker who helps parents and children communicate with each other, manage emotional trauma, navigate social media and technology, and develop healthy parent-child relationships. Who doesn't want that? Mercedes started the Hashtag End Parent Shaming movement as well as coined the term shame-proof parenting, using both to bring awareness to ending parent shame. Mercedes seeks to empower parents to believe that they are already great guides for raising healthy and happy children. Mercedes, thank you so much for being here with us. We wanna talk about the kid who really pushes your buttons, like over the top pushes your buttons, never ever does what you ask them, does the opposite of the rules you set. We often call this kid defiant. So, like, how would you define the defiant teen?
2: Yeah, I think this is a very common idea, right? The kid who's always kind of in your face, the kid who always kind of talks back. I think when they're younger, they're called strong-willed. When they get to be teenagers, they're called defiant. And I think it's a, there's definitely a trajectory there. And so what I often tell people is usually the defiant teen is the kid who's experiencing their environment a lot more acutely than probably your other kids are. They might be more empathic. They might be more attuned. They might even be feeling a lot more of what's going on in the home or in their environment. And so their defiance is, you know, they, they are kind of pushing back, but their defiance really is this overwhelm, if you will, of I don't know what's going on, so I'm just going to start pushing back. And I think that's when we start to really see that defiance and our teens who are pushing back and who, whether they're right or wrong, they're pushing back and they're asking questions and they might not be doing it in the nicest way. It might not even feel like they're asking questions, but this is kind of the, the aura of that defiance, if you will. So I would say I would define a defiant teen as a teen who is experiencing their emotions overwhelmingly, and is really and is really having a tough time letting people know that.
1: That is really well said. It's a, even just hearing that puts me in a different space in my head as I would respond to that teen. That's so interesting. So how about, you know, with those defined teens, as the parents, do we get to set the rules, you know, the house rules, you know, or like maybe just in a gentler way of setting expectations? Don't we get to, you know, we are the parents. Don't we get to act as them? What would, what would you say to that?
2: I'd say definitely you do get to set the rules. You do get to be the parent. What I often ask parents is take a step back and ask yourself, what are the rules? What is the environment of the home? How do I want people to show up, right? Oftentimes, when I talk about rules, we think about these kind of really stringent things that everyone has to adhere to. And what I like to do is I like to expand, kind of expand this idea of being a parent isn't just about rules. It's also about opening up a space for people to kind of test out. What does it feel like to talk back? What does it feel like to ask questions? To really fill out How do I do these things? Rules give us a container, but the ways in which we operate in that container, I think, is really where you become a parent, right? You're helping them understand why do we not call each other these names? Why do we talk to each other in this type of way, right? So you set the rule. Hypothetically, we don't use that type of word in our home. That's the rule. You have set that as the caregiver in the home. Now, how do we enforce that? That becomes part of the parenting. Who's my kid? Who's in our home? What type of environment do we have? What types of influences? happened in her home. One parent I had before was talking to me about cursing. The other kids kind of got through the household without cursing, cursed after they got out, but the younger one kind of just started throwing it out. And again, in her home, the rule was we do not use curse words to express ourselves. However, their son currently and almost everyone in the family consumed a lot of rap music. They consumed a lot of rock music. They consumed a lot of horror movies. They consumed a lot of things that had that language constantly flowing in their house. And as I talked to them about that, I said, in what context then does the teen, does your son use it? And then she began to laugh and talk about, he uses it very ironically like in music or very pointedly like in movies. And I was like, well, it sounds like that's the influence then. Not that he's breaking the rule, he's kind of testing out the influence of it. And so I say that to say, even though the rule was no cursing in their house, once we were able to figure out where was his cursing coming from, we began to talk about, well, does this rule still stand then? Or should we, because if you say ironically, there's no cursing in the house, does that mean music? Does that mean movies? Right. And so you began to have these really good negotiations with your kid. That actually helps them to understand context, not just the rule, but like context, accountability. So, yes, in a sense, of course you get to set rules. Of course you get to be the parent. But the rule setting is step one. The enforcing and the discussion and communication around it, that becomes, yeah, that's the parenting part of it. That's the part of it as the steward of this person's identity growing.
0: Okay, one of the things when you and I talked earlier about what we call the defiant teen You said it really at the core of it is all about conflict. You know, there's conflict in life, right? And yet your point was, we don't really know how to live with conflict. We don't know how to deal with it, work through it. Help us like figure out what does this look like? What is, why are we stuck often in these power struggles with our kids? And even when you were talking earlier, describing what you would say is the characteristics of a defiant teen, it was very gentle but it didn't have the other side, which is my rage at what's going on in the house. So that conflict is like two-sided. It's not It's not just the kid who's not listening. Yeah,
2: and Sue, I just love that you brought that into the conversation where it's like conflict is two-sided, right? On one end, you may have a defiant teen. On the other hand, you have a very angry, annoyed, frustrated parent, right? And so that's where that conflict comes in. And so what I often say is, Conflict is inevitable, but needs are never in conflict, right? But the ways that we do obtain or the ways that we go about trying to get those needs met, that's what actually causes conflict. And so in the case of a defiant teen, that becomes some of the conflict. If I see my teen as defiant, I'm probably approaching a lot of interactions with, they're always defiant, I need to approach it this way. If I approach it as they are a human in my house who's trying to get a need met, then I approach it differently, Right, Our teens, and I'll say humans for that matter, very rarely ask for things in a way that always displays the need first. I say, I need everyone to be quiet, but the need isn't for everyone to be quiet. The need is for me to have more peace of mind in this moment, right? Because usually the chaos isn't bothering you. Usually you tune it out. When you finally need everyone to shut up, you have a different need. It's not for them to be quiet, right? It's that I need to focus on this moment or I need a peace of mind in this moment, right? And so when we're looking at needs, really taking into account that conflict usually arises because the ways that we're trying to get our needs met aren't as helpful. And that, again, goes to the idea that sometimes we just haven't been taught how to do that. At times, we have been taught that this is a new type of conflict we haven't come in contact with. And let's just be real. No matter how great you are with conflict, no matter how good you are at communicating, life is just life. And sometimes a conflict arises when you're at your wit's end and you have no energy for problem solving, no energy for emotional regulation. And conflict arises that way, too. And so I like to share that because conflict resolution isn't always about having the right tools in the moment. It's also about sometimes being able to reflect and come back and say, okay, last week, the way we handled that, that wasn't cool. So maybe we need to talk about that, right? And so conflict resolution is is a longer journey than just knowing what to do in the moment. I'd like to talk about it in terms of like that before, during, and after conflict. Some of us have great conflict management skills. We can manage the before. Some of us have really good skills for the during. Some of us are really good at afterwards being kind of that peacemaker and making things, you know, make, make sense afterwards. Either way, figuring out what our family looks like.
1: I was just going to ask, can I meet the person who has the, the during part? Can, can, can we bring them into my household? <laughs>
2: yes. When you find them, can you please put them on the uh, podcast so I can listen to that episode? <laughs>
1: All right, so let's d- dig d- deeper into this idea of conflict. It's a part of life. We're not going to get rid of it. Most of us deal with it the way our our families dealt with it growing up. How do we change that to be more productive?
2: Well, I think I'll start with just kind of what we always start out with anytime you're trying to manage any issue, and that's paying attention to what is the actual issue here, right? What type of communication style did I learn from my family? What type of communication style does my family currently have? And hint, hint, if you're in a two-parent household, it's probably a hybrid of who the other parent is, right? That's also flowing through your home. And so paying attention to not just we need to fix this, but really sitting with All communication styles have a pro and a con. Sometimes being the more passive person who doesn't get riled up is good in the situation, but maybe having a more assertive person deal with the aftermath works better, right? Because they'll come back and address it, right? And so as we talk about these different types of communication styles, I often teach parents the first thing to do is to figure out what communication styles are in the home first, then figure out, well, does any of it work? Do we communicate in any ways that actually do work? Are we able to navigate conflict in any way? These, starting with those things, kind of gives a family a foundation to say, okay, we do do some things well, we do have some things figured out. Then we can look at, okay, what are the conflicts that are still having an issue because maybe someone yells more than the other person or maybe the other person shuts down and won't talk anymore, right? That's when you can start being more productive about what's actually happening because you're not just saying, we as a family suck at communicating you're actually figuring out what do we do well and let's keep doing that. And then let's look at the places where we get stuck and try to see how maybe our communication styles, maybe the way that we've taught our kids to communicate, if that has any influence. And I always say this, at the end of the day, if you've looked through everything and you're still like, man, I can't figure out what this stuckness is, Get some outside support, and it doesn't always have to be a therapist. If you're spiritual, I'm really big on getting that spiritual leadership. If you have other parents or other family members that can help mediate, bring them in, really being open to expanding paths. Me and my family can't do this. If you can't and you keep trying, see if there's someone else who can come help mediate that and help manage some of the productivity of that conversation.
0: So when we talked about conflict, you pointed something out that I I still can't really wrap my head around, but I like the concept that the way your child behaved wasn't conflict. They did something. They slammed the door there in their room. And your response was, well, there isn't conflict yet.
2: Right now, all there is are responses. Right? No one has actually engaged yet. You asked your child how the day was, they couldn't answer, so they threw their stuff on, you know, the floor and walked away. In that moment, that's actually a really good moment to pause. They're not there anymore. They've moved on to whatever they've gone on to the next room, their bedroom. And you get to sit and say, Well, how do I feel? Because Sue, you said it actually really good earlier. Hey, there's an angry parent on the other end of this too. Sit with that. I'm really angry. And I always ask my parents, ask why, especially if your kid hasn't come back to engage with you yet. Why am I so angry that they did that? You know why? Because they always do this every day. They think I'm supposed to clean up after them, and da 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 da. Well, that seems like a pattern. Then we need to address. It is not going to be addressed right now, right? Or, and I think, Sue, that was something you, you mentioned one time when we were talking, which they could also just have had a had bad day. And so when you realize I'm angry, but they only do this when they've had a bad day, then you can sit back and say, yes, I'm angry and I get to be angry, but i notice noticed my kid only does this when they've had a bad day. So let me give them a moment to cool off and maybe I can go back. In both of those examples, the parent had really valid reasons to be angry. It's just because I took that pause, I can figure out where that anger is and address it from that space. I never want parents to feel like they can't be angry, but to take that pause and really ask, what about this makes me angry? Helps to actually enter into conflict or enter into conversations in a different response than you would have if you just initially kind of ran after your kid and said, hey, how dare you, right? And entered into it that way.
0: And then you added one more thing, which I think we should focus on a little bit more, which is you're not gonna make a difference at that
2: moment. (laughs) Right. Right. Because you slid that in there, but it's big. Right. 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 And I think that's the piece of about conflict that we've never been taught. Conflict doesn't always have to be resolved right in that moment, right in the instance that it happens. Sometimes we can take a break and say, even though there is conflict, maybe we do need a space away from each other. Right. And so when you're trying to deal with it in the moment Unless you've really developed those skills to be in the moment with your emotions and able to manage someone else's, it's usually a really nice moment or a really good idea to just take a step back from that initial trigger, if you can. And I'll I'll put that caveat there, if you can. Humans are humans. We will sometimes react. But even after you've reacted, you get another moment to say, okay, I'm done yelling at you. I need a break. You can do that, too, because, again, like Sue said, you can't resolve it if everyone's yelling and no one's listening. Right. And so even if you decide I'm going to go up there. How dare you? If you decide, you know what, this isn't going to help me. You can also step back from that, too. Right. And so reminding yourself that even if you've entered into it, because, yeah, we're human, you can also take a moment to say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of yelling. Let's just talk about it tonight or let's just talk about it tomorrow. Right. You also get the opportunity to do that, too.
1: Does the kid, I want to insert something. Does your kid
2: get that opportunity as well? I think they do. Yes, for sure. For sure. And I'd even add this. That's part of conflict resolution for everyone in the family to have their signal that everyone recognizes as, okay, I can't anymore. This conversation is over for me. Whatever that is, we all in the family need to recognize that even though I want to keep talking, this person has let me know they're at their limit and they can't anymore. And so that's important that in that, that's that after that I was talking about, like after a conflict realizing, wow, we do better when we walk away from each other. So let's all have our thing. Please stop. I don't like this. I need to stop or... You know, someone goes, you know, like this, they've waved their hands in their face. We all know, okay, that's that person's cue to say they're done with this conversation. They can't anymore. And I think that that's definitely part of the conflict resolution, the after part, if you will.
0: Can we do any exercises around conflict like this before, during and after? But I mean, after the whole thing, if we're you know, we're not good. We all we're none of us are good at this. So we break it down to the before, during and after and is that like, if I want to reflect on it, it probably isn't enough for me to do it myself. How, is there a way for the family to kind of break this down?
2: Yeah, I often start off all my families with family meetings. Family meetings are a good way to help people start learning more about each other and their responses and who they are. And that actually helps with conflict management as well because if I know Sue is someone who doesn't like yelling, then when I start talking to her and I start yelling, Sue can actually remind me of that. Mercedes, do you remember last family meeting when I said yelling is hard? Right, but I'm mad at you, so I can't stop yelling. Let me get out of here. In that moment, we still have a conflict, but it's just, yeah, because of the last family meeting, Sue told me she didn't like people yelling at her when we're having conflict. Now that I'm paying attention to that, it doesn't mean it's over. It just gives us now a moment to say, okay, well, I can't stop yelling right now, then let's talk about it later. Now we both get to actually talk about it and be in this space without compromising. I don't have to pretend like I'm not mad and you don't have to pretend like you're enjoying being yelled at. We can just take a moment back. And so I think the exercise that I think is really good, and I say family meetings because that's that clinical perspective, but I would even say just having family movie nights or sharing something with each other, it helps us to know each other more. And so just having those small conversations, I would say what I would add to those is paying attention to how is this person responding how are they thinking about things? Because that is what comes into our conflict resolution when we're reflecting and we're talking about this afterwards.
1: Okay, so we're going to give you a couple examples of what we might call defiance and how you would look at the anatomy of conflict in each of those. So kid comes home from school, you know, there's the usual, like the rule is hang up your backpack and cope, you know, put away your shoes, all that stuff. Sit at the kitchen table, do. But instead the kid comes in, throws the backpack, doesn't sit at the table, dumps everything on the floor. I mean, we've seen it, right? They're like the, the whirlwind of that. Storm upstairs, they slam the bedroom door shut. And can we can we do it how we did it before with the before, during, and after? Breaking it down how, how we defined it before.
2: So I think the before of it is when the kid comes home and is throwing everything and during the whirlwind. This is that before, right? We know it's the before because nothing's happened, but now that they're starting to interact, With us, it's starting to trigger us, right? We're starting to be like, huh, what's here, right? This is the before. If you're thinking about before conflict, it's before you begin to respond to what's happening in front of you, right? And so before the conflict, I'm watching my kid throw everything everywhere. I'm sitting, seeing that they've come into the home and disrupted kind of whatever the nature of the home has been. The during is what do I decide to do in that before? And so if we go to, what could we do? We could just kind of sit with that because obviously they've left. They've thrown everything down and they're in their room. The door is closed. I have an opportunity now to sit in this before and say, what's going on for me first? I can get to them in a minute, but what's going on for me? Well, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and I'm annoyed. Why? Because they just threw their stuff around. Now we're going into the during. I want to do something about that. I get to make a choice now because I've taken that step back. Do I want to go in there and say something because I believe this is where I'd like to go with the conversation? Or do I take a step back and wait for them to come out of the room? Either way, you're going to probably end up in a conflict with this because it triggered you in some way. What you choose to either engage or to wait becomes part of the during. If I wait and I'm going to go with wait, then the kid comes out and I get to say, I didn't like how you came home today. It really upset the home. What's going on? I could say that. I'm sharing who I am. Or I can ask, hey, what's going on with you? I say all these options because in this moment, the conflict isn't about resolving it. We actually probably need to go through it so we can figure out what's happened here. And so in the during, I will give parents oftentimes a lot more leeway. This is the time where you get to kind of mess up. You get to yell. You get to say, I don't know what's going on with you. Get through it because you're feeling something right now. It's okay to get through it. The after is now that it's over, whatever resolution has happened, we get to decide if this is how we'd like to manage this type of conflict, if this is how we'd like to manage emotional conflict, if this is how we'd like to manage the emotion of everybody at the end of the day. Before, during, and after isn't about how good we do. It's just about the phases of every conflict that happens. Every conflict has a before, during, and after. You cannot bypass a before, a during, and an after a conflict. You're going to go through it, but understanding that this is kind of, okay, this is the before, during it, this is what we tend to do, and then afterwards, you get to be more in a tune with it. You get to be more aware of how you're behaving And you get to also have conversations about accountability, because it's not just about the teen and it's not just about you. It's how as a family do we manage the before, during and after the conflict?
0: Okay, so I am going to ask a follow up on that last question, because as you were telling the story, I was thinking about one kid in particular who might have come home a little bit with that, like drop everything, run upstairs, pissed off. And I can recall maybe, or a friend of mine told me this story, that they ran upstairs, opened the door and said, you will not do that in my house, right? Like this kind of like, I am the boss of you. And we we know we don't do that here. And we will not accept this behavior. So tell me how that plays out now. You've had the kid do something. You've had the mom do something. And where do you go from there?
2: So are we going from, I've yelled at them and said, you will not do this at my house. We're going from that. So we're in the during, we're in the during here. Well, yeah, we're talking about a
0: a real life parent who hasn't yet taken your course and hasn't yet reconciled all the ways that we deal with things poorly. And, but I'm stuck in that moment. I've created like an explosive situation. Is there a way to move on from that?
2: Definitely. And so I would say during, like I said, I always give parents a lot more grace during because during we're activated. And so even with this example, every conflict happens this way. There's always a before during and an after. So whether the during is you're doing you have like really good skills and you're trying to navigate it or the during is I'm yelling and we're yelling and everyone's mad. That's actually part of the conflict. And so the escalation of the conflict happens, I guess, when either person decides they're done with it. What I'll say to the parent is this. You actually get to decide when you're done. So if you've decided, I'm going in there and they're going to, I'm done. And you realize your kid's not listening or they put their earphones on or they're completely good. You actually get to decide now. You know what? I'm good too. I'm out of here. You get to decide. And I say this for a reason. Oftentimes parents think if my kid is ignoring me, I need to keep going. The thing is, you don't. If they're ignoring you, it's because they're not obviously present. Whatever you're gonna say, even if it's the most justified, logical thing ever, they actually aren't listening anyway, and you're gonna have to say it again. And so in these moments, you get to decide the whole time, do I want to keep trying to get through to someone who's either yelling back at me or ignoring me, or do I want to stop and say, you know what, I'm done. I need a break. You get to say that too. The whole during phase is that it's learning. When do I want to be done too? Because your kid will let you know. They'll close the door in your face. They'll leave and say, "I'm going to my friend's house." Like they'll let you know they're done. So you get to also decide when you're done.
1: It's funny. I'm sitting (laughs) a very pregnant pause because I was trying. I was trying to think about how I feel. I know how I feel when I'm done and I want to be done. I was thinking about when the kid's done and I'm not done. So it's kind of, it's just so interesting. It's an interesting dance and an interesting um, perspective. You almost have to be retrospective in the moment, which is an oxymoron. How about this one? You've got a kid who is skipping school, failing grades, weed, lots of weed. What is that conflict? Can we talk through that one? That's a really tough one and a pretty common one.
2: Not only is it a common one, the reasons behind it are very common as well. And so what I often tell parents is when you see your child doing things like this, right, complete disregard for themselves, their future, what's happening, this is a complete loss of identity where your child has no idea what to do, has no idea where to be, and has just decided on whatever the easiest is for them. So if skipping school is easiest, they'll do that. If failing classes is easy, it's fine, then I don't have to go to school anymore, I'll get expelled. It's all of these kind of catastrophic things that teenagers do. It's a really huge sign that they are lost in their identity and have no idea where to go. The reason why is because when you look at what they're actually motivated to do, like things like not go to school, use some type of substance, engage in risky behavior, those are choices that they're making because they feel like these are the only choices I have at this level. So that's the teen. For the parent, the parent is looking at a teen who is obviously going the wrong direction in life and wants to stop. Come back this way, don't go that way. Helping your teen understand that there are more options for that level of desperation, for that level of loss of identity, for that understanding of emotional disarray that will happen, In teen years, no teen, no matter how good they are how angelic they are as a tween or as a child will go through their teenage years without emotional turmoil and emotional overwhelm. And so I often tell parents that when it happens, whether it happens at 12 or it happens at 18, knowing that helping them understand that there's other alternatives to this, not that you can get out of it all the time, but that there's other alternatives to that loss of identity or that loss of self or even feeling overwhelmed By all of our expectations, when kids see that, when they see that there is a way to do other things for it, they begin to incorporate that into their identity. That my desperation doesn't equate failure, that my loss of self doesn't equate failure in a trajectory of losses. It's a temporary moment that doesn't define me. Now, here's where the parent comes in. You have to be mindful of how you talk about it because this level of desperation and behavior isn't defining for them. And so talking about it like that, it sounds like you're using this to try to get out of this. It sounds like you're having a hard time with this. Not, you know what, Stephanie, people who use weed are drug addicts. It's not defining for them yet. It may be if they keep using it, (laughs) it may be, but at this moment, it's not. And so as we talk to kids about this, especially teens, helping them realize you've made this choice to manage this, but there's a other slew of other choices you could make to manage the same thing. It helps them to realize, okay, am I making a choice here? I've been taught that weed is one way to manage it, but I've also been taught that there are other options. So now what choice am I going to make? And that becomes part of who they are. That becomes part of, yeah, what begins to define them for the next few years of their life as they make those choices.
1: Wow. There's not much to say after that. So we're going to wrap up. And <laughs> We're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what is the biggest myth about raising
2: teenagers? That there is no coming back from the failures in that era. And i like to say that even if you realize at 30 that you should have done something when they were 15, you can start doing it now and you can start even let them know now. It's never too late to repair or rectify anything that may have happened in the teen years. And the teen years are not definitive. So you can go back and help them understand things as well.
0: Mercedes Samudia, this was beautiful. I mean, what I really love is is taking, you kind of diffuse the anger and give us a reason to look lovingly at our kids. And I think that is so hard for us to get there on our own. So thank you for joining us today and giving us another way to look lovingly at our kids. Thank you for being here with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com.
0: If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more
1: from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.